Good. Thanks, Len Ray. Uh, very good to be with you again today. We're continuing our series through Isaiah 61. It's been absolutely wonderful. I think it's been a breath of fresh air. I was thinking as I was walking in this morning of uh, the people who Isaiah first wrote for, uh, away in exile, and I thought it must have been like a bit of a ray of sunshine remembering his words on them, and as I walked in this morning, it was just lovely feeling the warmth. I hope you're feeling some warmth from God out of this uh, series that we're going through. We've been looking at God's restoration plan, Isaiah 61. We saw who the anointed restorer is. We saw why he came. We saw what he came to do, the new identity that he brings. And last week, the rebuilding project that he calls his people to, which leads today to verses five to seven, which read like this. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours." more magnificent statements. Now, if I told you that once upon a time I played a round of golf, an 18-hole round of golf, and not once in that round did I hit the ball more than 80 yards, if you know anything about golf, you'd need a little bit of context and background information to make sense of that statement that I just made. You might ask things like this. You might say, were you ill on that day? So you couldn't play very well. Maybe you were only eight years old or something like that. Is that why you couldn't hit it very far? Were you only using a putter? Was it pitch and putt? Or maybe you're just rubbish at golf and that's why you couldn't hit it any more than 80 yards. And now I'd explain to you, I'd give you some background. I'd say, no, the reason for that was that I was playing on a particular different type of golf course that they designed for small areas of land. They designed a new golf ball, a lighter one with uh, sort of dimples on the outside instead of in and therefore you can only hit it 80 yards to be able to interpret my statement my point is that I played golf once and only and couldn't hit it more than 80 yards you need some background information some contextual information to make sense of it similarly Today's passage requires some background information and context if we're to interpret it rightly. See, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that some of it is really easy to understand. Statements like this from Psalm 89, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. That's easy to understand. We know what the author is saying there. And that's true for much of Isaiah 61 as well, written 2,600 years ago. It's fairly simple to translate it and interpret it into our world today. But I suspect if you've read anything of the Bible, anything of the Old Testament, you've hit parts of it and you've thought, what? You come across things and you think, how the heck does that work? Things like the laws, Things like some of the violence in the Old Testament, some of the extraordinary miracles. And what about the promises in verses 
5 and 6b today that we just read that go like this. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. What are we to do with some of that? Well, we have to understand the contextual background information. We have to understand that these are promises. Some of those statements are promises to the people of God who are one nation, Israel, located in a particular land in the Middle East. Some of these promises are land and nation specific. And in Isaiah's mind here, it's the return of that particular nation to that particular land that phrases some of the things that he says to them. And so in contrast to other parts of Isaiah 61, it would be an error for us to translate some of these land and nation specific promises directly into our context in this nation, in this land. Why? There's a very good reason for that. It's this. Because a decisive change happened with the coming of Jesus, of course. God's people are no longer one ethnic nation in one particular part of the earth. The New Testament no longer leads us to believe that that's how God's promises are being channeled. No, now we are multi-ethnic, multi-nation. Jesus came to bring all nations to himself across all of the world with no particular attachment to a particular plot of land. It's important we understand that to know how to interpret some of these promises. So we should be careful when we are handling Old Testament land-based promises. COVID has led many people to talk about 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. And I mean no disrespect to anybody. I'm just trying to be helpful. We have to work carefully with land-specific promises. That verse, which has been spoken many times during COVID, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, what do we do with that? Well, of course we should be humble. Of course we should pray. Of course we should turn from our sins, seek God for the good of our nation. But it's a specific promise for the healing of a land in a particular context that isn't the same as the UK now. So there are great instructions in that verse, but there's no land-specific promise in that verse for us in the UK or anywhere today. So with that little caveat of we need to handle carefully land-specific, nation-specific promises in the Old Testament, let's work through verses 5 to 7 and see how we can rightly apply that today and find some magnificent news that is more of the good news to the poor that the Anointed One is bringing to us even today. Firstly, strangers and foreigners in verse 5. Verse 5 read like this. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Well, Isaiah, sorry. So Isaiah is speaking to Israel 
And they've, of course, been oppressed. They've been subject to other nations. They've been taxed heavily. It's been an absolutely terrible situation. But God is promising and has been promising to now restore them with dignity and certainty. You might remember back in verse 3, he spoke about oaks of righteousness. There's dignity coming to this people who've been downtrodden, who've been taxed heavily, who've been oppressed. I'm going to raise you up and bring you dignity and stability as I return you to your land. And as they return, they don't have to fear the other nations any longer. Instead, they will invite them in and work with them. The point of verse 5 is not that the other nations are now going to have to grovel and do the menial tasks of shepherding, farming, and vine dressing, as if God's people are going to say, you oppressed us, now we're going to get you back. You're going to serve us. We're going to treat you harshly like you treated us. We're going to feed off all that you can produce for us. That's not what's going on. It's about extending God's blessing to other nations as God's splendor is displayed and reflected in his renewed people. Strangers, foreigners, those currently outside God's people will be welcomed to serve alongside them, enjoying the blessings of God's people being shed abroad for them. Which wasn't a new idea in the Old Testament, way further back get a statement like this. Leviticus chapter 19 says this, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners. You know what it's like to have been a foreigner in Egypt. Moving forward to the New Testament, this is exactly our calling, isn't it? To receive the blessings of God and to shed them abroad to nations around us. To be a conduit of God's blessing. To know that he has blessed us and through us he will bless others. Remember, we've been saying what God does in his people, he plans to do through his people. When I was living in Torquay, I had a friend over the road who uh, became a Christian, joined our church. And he had various friends. He'd been in the area for a long time. One of his friends was a guy called Jeff. And Jeff lived... Uh, about a mile away, and uh, Jeff, was the, <laughs> Jeff was the guy who if you've invited him to church or anything like that, he would say, absolutely not. And Matt and I were talking one time, just before we were going to start another Alpha course, and uh, Matt was, uh, was, I was saying, who, who, who can you invite? Who can I invite? And Matt said, well, I could invite Jeff, but there's absolutely no point. So we talked about it, we debated it a bit, and then we thought in the end, well, blow it. Just go and ask him, who knows? Can't do any harm. And Matt went to ask Jeff, do you want to come to Alpha? What was Matt doing? Matt was saying, come and be part of the blessings that we have received from God. And lo and behold, Jeff says, all right, but I'm only coming for the food. And Jeff came to week one of Alpha. And he said, I'm only coming to week one. and I'm only coming for the food. And Jeff never left. And Jeff became a Christian. His wife became a Christian. And we buried Jeff actually a couple of years ago as a believer in Jesus who is now with him forever. What's going on there? 
Is it Matt just thinking, well, I better, I need to, I better do something about this? No, it's Matt saying, we have inherited enormous blessings from God, and it's not to be kept, it's to be shared. The people of God are there on display for the splendor of the Lord's name, sharing his blessings. We used to run a kids' club in the town on a needy estate. We used to run holiday clubs on that estate. What were we trying to do? We were trying to say, the blessings we've received, come and share them. That's what's going on here. That's what you and I are called to. When you go to work tomorrow morning, or even if you're at home on blasted Zoom meetings again, you are there to be a blessing to everyone that you touch. Strangers and foreigners will be a part of this community. That's what God's called us to. Secondly, priests, he talks about here. Verse 6a reads like this. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. I can imagine the people saying, well, yes, Isaiah, we, we know that. We know that some among us, the Levites, that tribe, they're called to be priests. They serve the Lord through offering sacrifices and mediating between God and man, representing the people before God and giving their time to worship. It's, it's always been like that. We know that, Isaiah. But no, no, no. This is so much more This isn't just a few, just one tribe, just a special category who are going to be servants, ministers to the Lord. This is all of the people. All of the people will be taken up with God himself. Which, of course, was always Israel's calling. Sure, some served as full-time priests, but all were to be part of the kingdom of priests with God himself as their focus. That was their calling, Exodus chapter 19. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Whiz forward to the New Testament. That, of course, is the very image that Peter is picking up on when he famously says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. If you're a follower of Jesus today, there's a sense in which you can say, I am a priest. I am among what we call the priesthood of all believers And whereas Isaiah's readers would have thought, well, back to Jerusalem, when we get back there, that, of course, will be the center of worship because that's where the presence of God is. Now, today, the presence of God is with you, follower of Jesus. We've been singing, worshiping, enjoying the fact that we don't have to go through rituals or go to a special place or do special things or go through special people. God is with every follower of Jesus. That is our privilege. It's magnificent. So worshipping God, ministering to him, serving him means all of us in all of life. There's no such thing as a secular, sacred divide. Well, I I go to work, I do that, I do my family, I might do some hobbies or whatever, do the gardening, whatever happens to be. Oh, and then I have my sacred life, the spiritual life when I'm at church or when I'm engaged with spiritual things. We don't believe in that at all. God isn't found in a temple anymore or in special things. Sure, he manifests his presence, particularly at some times, but basically he is with us always and we are with him always. And we don't believe in a clergy-laity divide either. 
As if we go back to, well, there are some special priests, those leaders, they do it for us. They mediate between us and God. They, they're the channel of blessing. We don't believe that at all. Hopefully they're a channel of blessing in one sense, but you have direct access to God. Every believer has the same status before God. Every believer should have the same enjoyment of the presence of God. This is our calling to be priests in every moment all the time. One man who encapsulated this as profoundly as any other was a guy who came to be known as Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was born in France in the early 17th century. At the age of 18, he had a profound experience of God. Somehow he joined the army. I don't know how that comes from a profound experience of God. But anyway, he joined the army, got injured and returned. He tried various careers, but he finally ended up on someone's advice in a monastery. He thought he'd become a monk in Paris as a servant. And he took the name Lawrence of the Resurrection. I guess that's kind of what you did in those days. You took a grand name. Well, he became the monastery's cook having vowed poverty, obedience, and chastity. And during his first 10 years there, he was thoroughly depressed, which I suspect I would have been as well. And he concluded he'd never find peace. Suddenly, and he writes, I found myself changed all at once, and my soul, which till that time was in trouble, felt a profound inward peace as if it were in its center and place of rest, which led him to a dramatic transformation such that he enjoyed the intimate love of God from that moment onwards. And from that moment, his ambition became this, to always, at all times, rest in the presence of God, cultivating a habit of knowing God is with me, I am with him, whatever I am doing and experiencing his presence, whether peeling potatoes in the kitchen or at prayer. He said this, the time of business in the kitchen does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees in prayer. Brother Lawrence knew what it was to reside in the presence of God all the time. Let me say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is your privilege. God is with you. You are with him. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Don't you sometimes wish that life had meaning all the time? Every day had some purpose and meaning? It does. Even in lockdown, you're a servant, a minister, one who is with God all the time. No wonder this is good news to the poor. Please receive it, dear friends. Tomorrow, when you go away from this meeting, this afternoon, you are in the presence of God. Enjoy it. All of which in this section leads finally to inheritance. Verse seven reads like this. In fact, that's, do you remember back in verse three, we had some insteads. We had three insteads. Well, there are two more here. 
Two more insteads that go like this. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. There's a couple more insteads as we've seen. There's a couple of possible pictures going on here. One is this. This image of double return, of double reward, of double inheritance is sometimes used in the Old Testament where God is saying, I'm not going to return you to what you had before. I'm going to super abundantly bless you. I'm going to lavish you with grace. It's like a double portion. But especially, there's this image. The picture of a father dividing up his estate for his sons to inherit. And in the Old Testament and in many cultures today, the oldest son inherits more, which I think is a very good idea, given that I'm an oldest son. That's often the case in cultures today. It certainly was in Bible times, that famous story of the prodigal son who wanted his share of the inheritance. Well, he'd have probably got a third of it because the older brother would have had two thirds of it, a double share. It's very hard for some of us in the West to get our heads around such a concept as that. But I was speaking to Lanray this week just to check out with him about his culture. In his culture in Nigeria, this is how it works. When his father died, the family made sure that he got more than the rest. Which to us in the UK, who've been raised in the West, feels so unfair. But it feels so right in that culture, particularly for this reason. The oldest son has the responsibility to carry on the father's name. And God is saying through Isaiah here, I am going to restore you, I'm going to rebuild you, and you are going to have an extraordinary inheritance as you carry on my name, displaying my splendor to all the nations around. And the New Testament, jumping again there, makes it very clear. We are heirs of God. We have an inheritance. It says this, since you are God's child, he has made you also an heir. And also this, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now from this passage, again, trying to interpret it rightly, you've got to ask this, but if our inheritance is no longer tied to the land, what is this eternal inheritance that is now ours? Well, let's jump back a bit. And go back to those who ministered in the Old Testament, the Levites. And we read this, that they weren't to get an inheritance of land at all because the Lord is their inheritance. Every other tribe had its portion of land. The Levites didn't have any for this very good reason. The Lord is their inheritance, which is precisely what Jesus has won for us. This is the ultimate good news to the poor, is that our inheritance is not stuff in this life, in this life or a portion of land or even only forgiveness, but God himself is the promised eternal inheritance. We get God and life forever in his presence. That's a common biblical theme that runs through and culminates in Revelation 21. Let me help you. Most often from Revelation 21, you hear this magnificent verse. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's your inheritance. Life forever without the sufferings of this world. But verse 3 is really our inheritance. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Wow, what an inheritance. The people of God receive God. Life forever in his presence, face to face with him, worshipping forever. No hindrance between them and him. This is our inheritance. And all of this, It's good news to the poor because what God does in his people, he plans to do through his people. So as we enjoy these blessings, let me encourage you, as you are a blessing to your friends, the invitation is not only come and be forgiven, it's this, Come and enjoy the blessings of life among God's people, verse 5. Live a life of ultimate purpose, serving God. And verse 7, share the ultimate inheritance. What amazing good news to the poor we've received and we can be to others. Everlasting joy will be yours. Let me just wrap up. If you've been watching today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, let me say this to you. Come, come, share in the blessings of Isaiah 61 and all that the church has received and is. Come, maybe today is your day to say, Jesus, yes. I don't know everything yet, but yes. Come, strangers, foreigners, others, those not part of the people of God will come and share the blessings. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want to make sure I've reinforced that you have purpose every minute of every day, even in lockdown, even in the challenges, because you're serving God. You're a priest. And let me encourage you, there is the most extraordinary inheritance that awaits you, that is difficult to get our heads around. God himself is our inheritance with him forever unhindered enjoying him delighting in him God himself is our inheritance good news to the poor for sure